Welcome, fellow crime addicts, to our weekly CA meeting. I'm Kylie. And I'm Casey. Grab a cup of coffee and let's get our fix. Welcome back, addicts. This week, we are swinging back to the 1940s. Now, the 1940s was known for a lot of things, including the Depression, the Second World War, swing dancing, and of course, for the females, that bold splash of red lipstick. With that being said, what is more fitting than taking it to the windy city of Chicago and talking about the lipstick killer? So that's what we're doing. And as for us, we are going to be sipping on a blended gold rush because I have been craving those since the last time we had them. So we're definitely doing that recipe again. And it's just as delicious this time. This week, we are going to be shouting out Janet S., Kaylee K., and Taylor M. They have liked, commented, rated, shared, reviewed, or donated. So we thank you guys so much. We are so grateful for all the support you guys have been giving us with our podcast. And we love you guys so much. For your chance to get a shout out in our next episode, please donate, like, follow, rate, review, or share across all social media platforms. You can find us at Crime Addicts Pod on iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, and IG, or on the World Wide Web at CrimeAddictsPodcast.com. On our website, Addicts, you will find a spot where you can submit case recommendations, find our delicious coffee recipes. There's also a pretty cool donate button. And if you're an Amazon shopper like myself, go ahead and click our Amazon link. It will redirect you to the Amazon site or app. Simply add your items to your cart and check out. This process will help support our show and it will not cost you anything extra. The date was Monday, January 7th, 1946, and the location was in Edgewater, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. The United States had just a few months earlier defeated the last of her enemies in a world war, and while that war saw many terrible things happen, for most Americans, those things were far away. It was a time of national unity and purpose, and at least on the home front, a sense of innocence. That is, until a six-year-old blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl by the name of Suzanne Degnan was kidnapped, not on her way to or from school or the store, but from her own bedroom. This was a shock that shattered the aforementioned sense of innocence. This was true even though the crime rate increased after the end of the war, and Chicago itself saw at least two gruesome murders prior to Suzanne being kidnapped. But they were adults, and Suzanne was a child, a very young child. On January 6, 1947, the day prior, the Degnans had a busy Sunday. They had been out all day, not returning until late, at which time Mrs. Degnan made sandwiches for both her daughters and shuffled them off to bed. The next day, both were scheduled to return to Sacred Heart Academy because the holidays had ended. During the night, the only sounds the household heard were the momentary barking of the neighbor dogs, a disturbance not out of the ordinary and some men talking in the street. A neighbor, Cecilia Flynn, thought one of the men had said, quote, this is the best-looking building around. Mrs. Degnan at one point sat up in bed, waking her husband beside her in the process. She explained that she thought she had heard Suzanne crying. The couple listened a few more minutes, heard nothing more, then returned to sleep. In the morning, Mr. Degnan went to wake his daughters for school. He thought it odd that Suzanne's door was closed, 
the child was much too afraid to sleep in the dark. Peering in, he saw that her bedroom window was fully raised, the curtains blowing in the ice-cold breeze, and the girl was nowhere to be seen. The rest of the family scoured the quarters, closets, window seats, even outside on the fire escape, then woke the neighbors and asked them to search their premises. Panic emerged when it became apparent Suzanne was gone. Police found a ladder outside the girl's window and also discovered a ransom note which had been overlooked by the family. The note said, quote, Get $20,000 ready and wait for word. Do not notify FBI or police. Bills in $5 and $10. And I want to make a note that the spelling on this note was horrid. Like, wait for word makes no sense. And wait was spelled W-A-I-T-E. Um, on the reverse side of that note, it was written, burn this for her safety and safety is spelled S A F T Y. So obviously there was a lack of knowledge being displayed on this note here. (laughs) Um, police had questioned the Degnan family's neighbors, but no one had seen anything unusual. Suzanne lived with her parents, James and Helen and 10 year old sister, Elizabeth. Mr. Degnan worked for the office of Price Administration, OPA, and had recently been transferred from Baltimore, bringing his family with him. Good at his job, his salary nevertheless barely afforded him the necessities of life, but he had managed to show his children a happy Christmas just the same. The Degnan family lived in a rented first-floor apartment in a large two-flat building with attic rooms at the northeast corner of Thorndale and Kenmore. The building was at 5943 Kenmore and no longer stands. It was demolished in 1974 and later replaced by a four-story building for seniors. On the day of Suzanne's disappearance, several calls were made to the Degnan residence demanding ransom payment, but without leaving further instructions or further conversation. The mystery of who placed those calls was soon answered. While checking out local hooligans to see if they had any connection to the Degnan case, they picked up a local boy named Theodore Campbell. Under questioning, he admitted that another local teenager named Vincent Costello had killed Suzanne. The Chicago Tribune declared the Degnan case solved. Costello lived only a few blocks from the Degnan apartment building and attended the nearby high school before being convicted of armed robbery at age 16 and sent off to a reform school. According to the story Campbell told the police, Costello told him that he kidnapped and killed the girl and disposed of her body. Costello allegedly told Campbell to make ransom calls to the Degnans. This corroborated the mystery ransom calls made to the Degnans the morning after Suzanne was reported missing. The police arrested Costello on that basis and interrogated him overnight. The story started to fall apart when both Campbell and Costello's polygraph test indicated that they had no knowledge of the murder. They later admitted that they heard police officers discussing details of the case and came up with the idea of calling the Degnans about the ransom. I just want to say that that's really fucking sick and twisted, and I hope that they learned their lesson, and I hope they did end up going to a reform school and got some type of punishment. That's fucking terrible. Can you imagine being those parents? Like, you're already dealing with all of this, and now you're getting prank phone calls because somebody's deciding to take advantage of your situation. It's just fucking horrible. After Suzanne had been abducted and murdered, the murderer dismembered her and placed her body parts in different sewers and drains around the neighborhood. On the same day as she was reported missing, a detective, on a hunch, ordered a search of all the sewers and drains in the immediate neighborhood. 
It was a good hunch. They first found her head, then in succession found her torso and legs, each in different place. An alternative story is that the search was a result of an anonymous phone call suggesting that the police look in the neighborhood sewers, but this was never confirmed. They did not find her arms until several weeks later, February 20th, and she was buried without them. The funeral was held January 11th at St. Gertrude's Church, an estimated 1,300 people were in attendance. Searches uncovered a laundry tub in a nearby apartment building basement across from where her head was found that seemed to have been where she was dismembered. The press called it the, quote, murder room. Police believed that the kidnapper killer must have driven a car a few blocks to the place of dismemberment because carrying a 74-pound child through the streets would have drawn too much notice. After all, the streets were not exactly empty, even for the bewitching hours. Witnesses had seen a woman in the vicinity carrying a large bundle in both her arms in the vicinity of the Dagnan home. She got into what seemed to be an awaiting automobile where a bald man sat behind the wheel. Another witness, a serviceman on furlough, saw a large dark man carrying a shopping bag, but the phantom couple and the man with the bag were never identified. By April, more than 370 suspects were questioned and cleared by police, along with giving about 170 polygraph exams, but to no avail. That's a ton. Because polygraph examinations take hours, like, and then 170 of them, that's a lot. So the press was taking an increasingly critical tone as to how the police were handling the investigation. On several occasions, authorities claimed to have captured the killer, but were embarrassed when the cases proved baseless and the suspects were released. Here are some notable instances regarding potential suspects in this case. First was a janitor. He was 65 years old and his name was Hector Verberg. He was arrested on suspicion of murder on the basis that he worked in the apartment building where Suzanne lived. The sink in which the victim was dismembered was in the area he frequented, and the grimy state of the ransom note suggested it was written by a dirty hand, and janitors frequently have dirty hands. This is terrible investigation tactics. I cannot believe that would never pass in today's day and age, but I mean... I'm trying to remember what era we're in, but holy moly, you have dirty hands, so you must have written this note. What? Murderer. <laughs> right, murderer. And also, you may not have had dirty hands, but janitors sometimes do, so you probably do. Like, <laughs> holy moly. <laughs> I The more we get into it, I thought like, oh, that's that's promising on, on this suspect, but okay. So the police were so confident with this conclusion that they told the press and we're going to see that the media and the press plays a huge role in this case. So um, when we say that things are reported in the press, just know that that's a big deal. During this press release, police were quoted in saying, this is the man. However, there were many discrepancies between Verberg's profile and the one that was developed by them as to what kind of skills the killer had, including him having surgical knowledge or at least being a butcher. The elderly man was repeatedly beaten under police questioning for 48 hours, suffering injuries, including a separated shoulder. Despite this, he refused to confess. Verberg's janitor union lawyer got Verberg released on a writ of habeas corpus. He said of the experience after his release, 
quote, Oh, they hanged me up. They blindfolded me. I can't put up my arms. They are sore. They had handcuffs on me for hours and hours. They threw me in the cell and blindfolded me. They handcuffed my hands behind my back and pulled me up on bars until my toes touched the floor. I no eat. I go to the hospital. Oh, I am so sick. Any more and I would have confessed to anything. End quote. He spent 10 days in the hospital. It was determined that Verberg couldn't write English well enough, even by the crude standards of the ransom note itself, for him to have written it. He sued the Chicago Police Department for 15000 U.S. dollars, but was awarded 20000 U.S. dollars, which is equivalent to approximately 300000 U.S. dollars today. 5000 of those $20,000 awarded to Verberg was awarded to his wife. The police tried to pressure her to implicate her husband in the murder. Another notable false lead was that of Sidney Sherman, a recently discharged Marine who had served in World War II. Police had found blonde hairs in the back of the Dagnan apartment building and nearby was a wire that the authorities suspected could have been used as a garrote to strangle Suzanne. Near that was a handkerchief the police suspected might have been used as a gag to keep Suzanne quiet. On the handkerchief was a laundry mark name S. Sherman. The police hoped that perhaps the killer had made a fatal error leaving it behind. They searched military records and discovered that Sidney Sherman lived nearby at Hyde Park YMCA. The police went to question Sherman but discovered that he had vacated the residence without checking out and quit his job without picking up his last paycheck, suggesting the actions of a guilty person since someone who is innocent would be unlikely to leave without their last paycheck. A nationwide manhunt ensued. Sherman was found four days later in Toledo, Ohio. He explained under interrogation that he had eloped with his girlfriend and denied that the handkerchief was his. He was administered a polygraph test, which he passed and was later cleared. Eventually, the real owner was found. The handkerchief belonged to a airman, Seymour Sherman, of New York City, who had been out of the country when Suzanne was murdered. He had no idea how it could have possibly ended up in Chicago, and the presence of the handkerchief was determined to be a coincidence. And this is where we turn our podcast to be about tracking down the owner of that handkerchief and how the F it got from New York to Chicago. (laughs) I need to know. Why is that in the alleyway of the Degnan residence? I don't understand. The wind blew it from New York City to Chicago. Chicago's windy city, so it makes sense. <laughs> but it started in New York. <laughs> I guess we'll move on with the real details. The details that we do know. <laughs> in addition to what we've already said, there were also even false confessions that criminals around the world were trying to use this case as leverage in their own cases when they were actually completely unrelated, such as that of Richard Russell Thomas. He said, quote, I want to go back to Chicago and take my medicine, even if it means the chair, end quote. Thomas was a male nurse living in Phoenix, Arizona, having moved from Chicago. At the time, he was imprisoned in Phoenix for molesting one of his own daughters. Elements of his handwriting matched the ransom note and his medical training as a nurse matched the profile suggested by police. However, he apparently had some elements of the case wrong. 
Because of the errors and the suspicion that Thomas confessed in order to avoid jail time in Arizona, the confession was disregarded. In addition, the authorities were intrigued by a promising new suspect reported to the paper the same day the Thomas development broke. A college student was caught fleeing from the scene of a burglary, brandished a gun at police, and possibly tried to kill one of the pursuing policemen to escape. By this time, Thomas had recanted his confession, but the press didn't notice in light of the new lead. To say the least, it was a high-profile case, constantly before the public, thanks to extensive coverage and competition by the Chicago's newspapers, and the police were under considerable pressure to find the murderer. On January 24th, over 400 persons gathered at the Swift Elementary School to protest alleged police inefficiency and brutality. According to a Chicago Tribune story the next day, demonstrating that community activism in Edgewater is not just a recent phenomenon. After being a major story in January, which on 20 days was a Chicago Tribune front page story, it gradually faded from the public spotlight, but was never really forgotten. In February, there were 29 articles on 22 days in the Chicago Tribune, of which four were on the front page. In March, there were 25 articles on 23 days, and none were on the front page. April saw a drop-off with only six articles on five days. None were on the front page, followed by May with eight articles on seven days, of which two were on the front page. In most cases, the articles were short and related to suspects who were questioned, but then found not culpable. An article on April 7th indicated that the police had questioned 375 persons in connection with the crime. A May article on the four-month anniversary recounted the investigation efforts to date and concluded that the abduction murder was no closer to being solved. June started out very much like May, with only four articles between the 1st and the 25th. Then on June 26th, it was on the front page headlines again when Richard Thomas had falsely confessed. While this new wrinkle in the case about Thomas was still a front page story, another story was reported that would soon overshadow it. A 17-year-old University of Chicago college student who was apprehended in an attempted burglary. It was soon learned that he had been arrested before for burglary when he was age 13. His name was William Hirons. The Suzanne Degnan story shortly became the William Hirons story and remains so today. The two names forever linked. What began the link was a comparison of his fingerprint to that of the ransom note. Sergeant Thomas Laffey, the department's fingerprint specialist, reported that one of the fingerprints matched, and it was announced to the press. Had it not been for this action, the William Hirons story would have been a one- or two-day story at the most. So who is William George Hirons? Well, he was born on November 15, 1928, in Evanston, Illinois. He grew up in Lincolnwood, which is a suburb of Chicago. His parents were Margaret and George, a couple whose marriage wasn't necessarily in trouble, but was far from happy. Always teetering on the edges of poverty, the coming depression made matters worse. Mr. Hiron's meager paychecks earned as an odd job laborer often went to treat himself and his pals at the local bowling alleys. Money, or the lack thereof, continued to be the source of all family problems to come. 
Hiram's childhood, for all practical purposes, and despite the domestic problems, was normal enough. He was a restless boy, mischievous. Because his mother was forced to help provide income, he and his younger brother, Jer, born three years after him, were often left at home with babysitters who found them a handful. One afternoon, their mother returned from her job at the bakery to find the parlor draperies charred and a section of the carpet burned. A science experiment gone wrong. One time, Mrs. Hirons found her son on top of the garage roof, cardboard wings strapped to his arms, and him in the pose of a pterodactyl about to leap from a cliff. She yelled, making him discouraged from attempting to fly. Friends remember Hirons as a curious boy who liked toying with chemistry sets, taking things apart, and putting them back together. Basically a loner, he would putter around for hours. His mother recalled that he liked to work on model airplanes, fix old clocks, tinker with mechanical things, and draw. Quote, some of our friends commented on Bill's ability to do such work with care and precision, she said. Quote, they thought his drawings of airplanes and ships were especially good, and they predicted interesting things for him in the future, end quote. But the little spats between mother and father, usually about money, turned into violent arguments. Hirons couldn't stand it. Quote, Jer seemed to be able to cope with it. I couldn't, he explained years later. At the age of 11, Hirons claimed to have witnessed a couple making love. He told his mother, who told him that all sex was dirty and would lead to diseases. While kissing a girlfriend, he burst into tears and proceeded to vomit in the presence of the girl. At his young age, Hirons would leave his home and take to the streets, go on long walks, stay away, anywhere, just to avoid listening to his parents' squabbles. That is when he took to burglary. His first theft occurred when he was in seventh grade, during his first job as delivery boy for a local grocer. Finding that a customer had shortchanged him by a dollar, he panicked, knowing that the grocer depended upon him to collect the correct amount from each customer. Afraid to lose his job, he determined to make up that dollar loss. At the next stop he made to a customer in a nearby apartment building, he spotted some singles lying unchecked on a table and took one. The surge of satisfaction came easy. Hirons explained his modus operandi, which differed from season to season. Quote, in the winter, I chose early evenings between 5 and 6 p.m. because it grew dark early and I could tell whether or not anyone was home. Often, especially in the winter, I burglarized the lakefront area. I would walk around the building, check the windows, ring the front bell, and if no one answered, go to the back door. I would enter through the window off the porch and then chain or double lock the front door so I couldn't be surprised, end quote. In the summer months, Hirons robbed mostly apartment hotels, gaining access through the buzzer, then following a random hallway to possible luck. Quote, tenants often left their doors open to catch the cross draft. It was the age before air conditioning. I could look into the room to see if there was anything of value. Fire escapes were a last resource because there was too much exposure. Earl R. Downs, who was in charge of the robbery investigation at the time, said, quote, that kid was like a monkey. Back in 42, he used a narrow board to span a five-foot area away from a third-floor porch to reach a third-floor bathroom window at 837 Bell Plain. He crawled across the narrow board while 30 feet below him was a cement sidewalk, death if he fell. 
The same holds true for the time he lowered himself over a roof to a third-floor apartment at 3933 Pine Grove, something like a human fly. Or the time he climbed up a wire mesh-covered English basement window to grasp the window ledge and then pull himself into the first-floor apartment at 3744 Pine Grove. How he got a foothold in the wire meshing is beyond imagination, end quote. Most of what he stole, he stashed in an unused storage shed on the roof of a nearby apartment building. In no time, the shed bulged with women's furs, men's suits, radios, utensils, and guns. Hirons admitted he liked guns. They fascinated him. His father had been a security guard at one time, and he loved to study the unloaded object to investigate the mechanical gadgetry of it. In those days, many residents owned guns for protection against home invaders. While pilfering private property, he would occasionally find one in the dining room or in the bedroom dresser and steal it. At age 13, right before grade school commencement exercises, he encountered his first run-in with the law involving a high-seated 25 caliber automatic. A policeman stopped a suspicious-looking teenage hirons in a park and, in frisking him, uncovered the weapon on his person. The lad stammered, explaining that he had just found it on the ground, but the officer didn't believe his story. He escorted the boy to the delinquent's home, where he was locked up until his hearing three weeks later. In that period, Hirons admitted to 11 burglaries and to being responsible for the loot that the policeman found on his rooftop hideaway. The juvenile court sentenced him to the Catholic-run Gibalt School for Wayward Boys in Terre Haute, Indiana. Upon his release the following June, Hirons returned to his slippery-fingered habits. Stealing had become an obsession, and even though he knew it was wrong, he required the thrills it brought. He was arrested again, now for prowling in the Rogers Park Hotel. In his possession was the front door key of another hotel down the block. At the nearest station house, a policeman beat him up during his interrogation, but the boy admitted to his mother that, quote, it was the punishment I deserved, end quote. This time, a judge ordered him to be sent to St. Bade's Academy, a detention center run by the Benedictine monks on the banks of the Illinois River in Peru, Illinois. There, he proved to be an excellent student and a team player, earning top grades and partaking in the school's sports offerings. Hiring's scholastic average was so high that he was urged to take a test for admittance into the special learning program offered by the University of Chicago. Right before he left the center, he was notified that he was accepted into the program and he was urged to start classes the following fall term, 1945, skipping his senior year in high school. He would only be 16 years old. This achievement pleased his professors and, more than him, his mother, who figured her son had finally outgrown his insurgent ways. While he was at St. Bades, his parents had leased a rambling old frame house on a large lot in suburban Lincolnwood, with plenty of room for a restless boy to roam. His mother thought that new scenery would encourage new ideals. Despite the surroundings, closer to the country air, his parents still argued incessantly. Once again, Hiram sought peace of mind, the only way that he came to know by psychologically blanketing his problems through stealing. Hiram's only stole when he was spending substantial time at home and said, quote, I wasn't even tempted 
Then I would go home and the tensions would build and I would find myself burglarizing to ease them, end quote. In the meantime, Hirons had begun classes at the university majoring in electrical engineering. He commuted at first, his father dropping him off and picking him up from Hyde Park on his way to and from the street mills. But after realizing too much time was being spent on the road, Hirons decided to board at Gates Hall near his classes. His parents could not afford the tuition nor the dorm's costs, so the student grabbed whatever jobs he could. He worked several evenings a week at Orchestra Hall downtown as an usher and at university functions such as a docent. For a while, all went well. By the second year, Hiram's grades had begun to slip. He had discovered girls, and they had discovered his smiling face and dark, wavy hair, and he began a series of romantic flings. His favorite date was a attractive blonde fellow student, Joanne Selma, who lived in the campus area. When not on a date, he and his roommate, Joe Costello, not to be confused with Vincent Costello, who was one of the juveniles responsible for the prank phone calls demanding ransom when Suzanne was kidnapped. So they would spend leisure hours discussing philosophy and playing games instead of attending to homework. And then, of course, there were the burglaries. He continued without interruption as what Hirons ascertained a means to supplement his college costs, hitting unwatched wallets and purses in homes and hotels in the campus area. Hirons was able to quote save enough to buy two five hundred dollar U.S. savings bonds through underground channels acquainted through university chums. He also garnered stolen war bonds that. Once the owner's names could be etched off with a surgical scalpel, were worth $7,000. These he kept in a worn suitcase beneath his dorm cot beside the surgical equipment that had come his way via most things he owned, thievery. Except for the occasional cash he stole, he never robbed for money, never tried to pawn off the objects he took, like cameras, radios, and jewelry, He didn't know any fences on which to unload the merchandise. Never cared to pursue that channel. It was simply the feeling he was able to conjure up from the act a buzz of excitement. So why were the police so convinced that Hirons, a serial burglar, committed the kidnapping and murder of six-year-old Suzanne? Well, that's because there were two other unsolved burglaries and they were investigating these at the same time of Suzanne's case. Unfortunately, those two burglaries also ended in murder. The first one was Josephine Alice Ross. She was 43 years old and had been divorced three times and was unemployed, living with her daughters, Mary Jane Blanchard and Jacqueline Miller, in a small Kenwood Avenue apartment in the Eastwood District. Josephine spent her time attending movies, visiting fortune tellers, and fighting her last husband's insurance company for a policy that they said wasn't valid. She had been planning to open a local restaurant with the money, but financially things looked bleak. Strapped for real income, she had set her eyes on a new husband named Oscar. Attractive, she secretly had two interested suitors. On June 5, 1945, the daughters had gone off to work by 9 a.m. Their mother decided to sleep in. She had risen early, chatted briefly with her children, and then, after they left for their respective jobs, she returned to bed. 
Her body was discovered at 1.30 that afternoon when Jacqueline came home, as she usually did for lunch. Finding the apartment in disarray, drawers pulled out, chairs knocked over, newspapers unfurled across the floor, she hurried to her mother's bedroom where she found a horrendous sight. Josephine was sprawled across her bed, her throat gashed by multiple stabbings, her head wrapped in a dress. Blood had been spewed across the room onto the walls and drapes and furniture, and it soaked the mattress. In the adjoining bathroom, several articles of the woman's clothing and undergarments lay in a pool of bloody water in the tub. Only change money was missing from the premises. No fingerprints were found. She was presumed to have surprised an intruder who then killed her. Dark hairs were found clutched in Josephine's hand, indicating that she had struggled with the intruder before she was killed. Josephine's fiancé had an alibi, as did her former boyfriends and ex-husbands, and police had no other suspects. They looked for a dark-complexioned man who was reported loitering at the apartment or running away from the scene, but they were unable to identify or locate him. Honorably discharged U.S. Navy women accepted for volunteer emergency service, also known as WAVES, Frances Brown was petite, brown-haired, and shy. She lived in room 611 at the Pinecrest apartment building on Pine Grove Avenue, not far from where Josephine Ross had lived, and was home alone the evening of December 10, 1945. Roommate Viola Butler was spending the evening at a friend's house, and Frances, arriving home late at about 9.30 p.m., was told by a desk clerk that a man had entered the foyer earlier inquiring about her. When informed that she was out, he left. According to the clerk later, Frances seemed to have been expecting the caller. She continued up the elevator to the sixth floor and spent what remained of her evening relaxing and arranging the next day's wardrobe. She called her mother to say she'd be visiting for Christmas, then showered and retired to bed. Outside, a winter's wind blew quietly and coldly. The streets were glazed with ice. It was a good night to stay indoors. She was from Richmond, Indiana and attended business school worked hard, and eventually landed a good job with the A.B. Dick Company. When the war came, she enlisted in the waves and put her office skills to good use as a telegrapher. She spent three years in the service, then returned to her old job after the Japanese surrendered in August 1945. Her new body was discovered the following morning by Martha Ingalls, the housemaid, curious as to why The tenant's radio was playing so uncharacteristically loud at 9 a.m. and why her door was ajar. Martha peeked into room 611 to find Frances's bed splattered with blood and a trail of it leading into the bathroom. There she found the tenant stretched over the tub, her head wrapped in her pajamas, a butcher knife rammed into her neck, and a bullet hole in her skull. Starkly written on the living room wall in the letters of lipstick were the words, Quote, for heaven's sake, catch me before I kill more. I cannot control myself, end quote. As in Josephine's apartment, the place was ransacked. No valuables were missing, but this time they had one fingerprint, a bloody one, smudged on the door jamb. The fingerprint would prove to be an important factor in the months to come. George Weinberg, a neighbor, had heard what sounded like gunshots around 4 a.m. Night clerk, John Dedrick told police that at about that time, a man had emerged from the down elevator, looking very nervous, fumbled by the front door, and left. 
By description, he was about 35 to 40 years old and weighed about 140 pounds. Police determined he had entered through the fire escape into the victim's apartment. On June 26, 1946, Hirons left his dormitory and walked in the direction of the Howard Street L or Elevated Station. His ultimate destination was the post office in suburban Skokie, immediately north of the city. He knew the area well and had used the post office many times to cash checks. This day, he found himself low on available funds and spontaneously had decided to cash at least one of the bonds. College debts were due, and besides, he had promised to take Joanne to the movies the following night. As he boarded the L, the bonds were tucked into the fold of his wallet. In the inside of his coat, he was carrying an old pocket revolver, all seven chambers loaded. He later claimed that he wasn't even certain the gun worked. It was there for show, a comfort factor, while carrying large sums of money. Arriving at the post office at 3 p.m., he found it locked and dark. A sign he had never noticed at the window announced that the place closed after noon during summer months. Angered at having taken the long, hot trip for nothing and realizing that he would have no cash for the upcoming eagerly anticipated date with his girl, he turned to what had worked so well before in a pinch, burglary. Hirons approached the Wayne Manor Apartments on Wayne Avenue. He had memorized the layout of the six-story building, which had been his target several times before. He opened the front door, approached the buzzer panel, and a woman answered. Hirons recalls, quote, I would talk gibberish. In those days, communication in such buildings was through brass tubes, and by the time the sound got to the receiving end, it was hard to tell what was being said. Since they couldn't understand me and I kept ringing the bell, they would simply buzz me in, end quote. Once inside, he rode the passenger elevator to a chosen floor, then paced the hallway until he spotted an open doorway. On the third floor, he found one. From his angle, he could see a wallet resting on a cabinet. Scanning the empty living room, he entered. But, as he reached for the wallet, the adjacent neighbor, witnessing the deed, yelped. Hirons was startled and ran for the stairwell. Behind him, he could hear the other's footsteps closing in hot pursuit. Not until he rounded the nearest intersection and darted down a private gangway did Hirons realize he probably lost his annoying tail. Wheezing but afraid, they might be circling the block roundabout. He climbed the wooden fire escape behind 1320 Farwell Avenue to gain a better vantage point of the alley beyond. A tenant, Mrs. Willett, saw the breathless scared teenager and phoned the police. Officers Tiffin Constant and William Owens responded. When Hirons saw their approach through the yard, he attempted to run. Seeing that the officers had blocked both ends of the staircase, however, Hirons knew he was trapped. There was no safe way out. Both policemen neared him from opposite ends. Above them, on the landing and frustrated, Hirons saw no alternative but to use the gun he had been carrying and fired in the direction of the closest officer, Constant. The officer ducked, but... When Hirons ran away, the cop charged. A tangle ensued. Hirons later expressed that he had had no intention to fire it, only to scare Constant out of the way that he might break through. In the meantime, an off-duty patrolman named Abner Cunningham had witnessed the situation and joined in. 
Cunningham grabbed three adobe clay flower pots off a railing and dropped them one at a time in angry, erratic, but rhythmical succession onto Hiram's head, and he was knocked unconscious. Doesn't that sound like a scene from a movie? <laughs> I'm going to drop a clay flower pot on your head. You're going to be knocked out and the police are going to come and pick you up. <laughs> there was gunshots fired and nobody was hit and they just dodged the bullets. Like it just literally sounds like a movie scene. That's the most like 1940s movie scene. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my gosh. And this was how movie scripts were written. <laughs> So police had apprehended Hirons and taken him to Bridewell Hospital, which was adjacent to the Cook County Jail. Policemen were threatening him, pushing him, and then punching him, jabbing him in the body. He felt his hands being pushed onto an ink pad. With a prior record, he was familiar with the feeling. He drifted in and out of consciousness. The questioning became more intense, demanding to know how he did it. To say that he did it, they... Uh, Demanding to know how he did it, to say that he did it, they, quote, knew that he did it. At one point, someone punched him in the testicles, causing him to nearly vomit. They also burned him with ether. Irons later said he was interrogated around the clock for six consecutive days, being beaten and abused by police and not allowed to eat or drink. He was not allowed to see his parents for four days. He was also refused the opportunity to speak to a lawyer for six days. You know how we talk all the time about appeals? <laughs> to me, this is screaming like, that's a problem. Ginormous red flag. Um, so two psychiatrists, doctors Haynes and Grinker, gave Hiron sodium pentothal without a warrant and without Hiron's or his parents' consent and interrogated him for three hours. Under the influence of the drug, authorities claimed Hiron spoke of an alternate personality named George Merman, who had actually committed the murders. Hirons claimed that he recalled little of the drug-induced interrogation. What Hirons actually said is in dispute, as the original transcripts have, ever since, disappeared. On his fifth day in custody, Hirons was given a lumbar puncture without anesthesia. Moments later, Hirons was driven to police headquarters for a polygraph test. They tried for a few minutes to administer the test, but he was in such obvious pain that the test was rescheduled for several days later. That's insane to me. When the polygraph was administered, authorities, including state's attorney William Toohey, announced that the results were inconclusive. On July 2, 1946, he was transferred to Cook County Jail, where he was placed in the infirmary to recover. Insane. Can you imagine literally any of these steps being taken place in today's day and age. I can't even imagine. There's no way. <laughs> Those officers would be charged like these. Oh my God. This would be a ginormous lawsuit. That's crazy. So I guess keep that in mind. Also though, um, I feel like we don't rely as heavily on polygraph tests anymore. Correct. Yeah. In some states, they're admissible. Some of them aren't. Right. But they're like, we need this test. And they did hundreds of them before for Suzanne's kidnapping. And it's like, it's not, I feel like that broad of a um, accepted form of investigation anymore. 
I mean, I think it's an investigation tactic for sure. It won't convict somebody, but I think it's definitely a form of investigation. You know what I mean? It's just a tool that you use. And if like how they had done polygraphs for 170 other people, they determined that that cleared them. But for him, they released the information, at least regarding the polygraph at the time, that it was inconclusive. That's true. I guess you're right. It's very interesting. I mean, I agree under certain circumstances and every case is going to be different. And I'm sure the discussion about polygraph testing will come up over and over and over again. But I don't necessarily disagree with administering the polygraph examination. But yeah, you definitely can't do it when you're in that much pain. I mean, can you imagine those responses that you would be getting? Like, you'd be all over the map on that grid. After the sodium pentothal questioning, but before the polygraph exam, Hiron spoke to Captain Michael Ahern, one of the few Chicago police officers who had showed him any kindness, with state's attorney William Tuey and a centographer at hand, Hirons offered an indirect confession confirming his claim while under sodium pentothal that his alter ego of George Merman might have been responsible for his crimes. That George, which happens to be his father's first name and Hirons' middle name, had given him the loot to hide in his dormitory room. Police hunted all over for this George, questioning Hirons' known friends family, and associations, but came away empty-handed. Details of the interrogation did get out at the time, valid or not. Hirons was attributed as saying, while under the influence, that he met George when he was 13 years old, that it was George who sent him out prowling at night, that he robbed for pleasure, quote, killed like a cobra when cornered, and relating his secrets to Hirons. Hirons allegedly claimed that he was always taking the rap for George, first for petty theft, then assault, and now murder. Psychologists explain that at the time that Hirons made up this duo personality, like how normal children made up imaginary friends to keep his diabolical deeds separate from the person who could be the average son and student, date nice girls, and go to church. Authorities were skeptical of Hirons' claims and suspected that he was laying the groundwork for an insanity defense, but the confession earned widespread publicity with the press transforming Merman to, quote, murder man. <laughs> the best nickname that I can possibly see for this. <laughs> Genius. I just want to give you a round of applause for that one. <laughs> It's too good. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Okay, so let's get into talking about some of the evidence. So while handwriting analysts did not definitively link Hiron's handwriting to the lipstick message, police claimed that his fingerprints matched a print discovered at the scene of the Francis Brown murder. It was first reported as a bloody smudge in the door jam. Further, a fingerprint of the small left finger also allegedly connected Hirons to the ransom note with nine points of comparison. At the time, Hirons' supporters pointed out the FBI handbook regarding fingerprint identification required 12 points of comparison matching to have a positive identification. Later, Chief of Detectives Walter Storms confirmed that the bloody smudge left on the door jam was Hirons. Police searches without a warrant of Hiron's residence and college dormitory found other items that earned publicity. 
notably found was a scrapbook containing pictures of Nazi officials that belonged to a war veteran, Harry Gold, that was taken when Hirons burglared his place the night Suzanne was killed. Gold lived in the vicinity of the Degnans that put Hirons in the circle of suspicion. More relevant, considering the context of the case against him, the police found in Hirons' possession a stolen copy of Psychopathia Sexualis. The press focused on it and started to depict the young burglar as a real-life Mr. Hyde. The police also found a stolen medical kit among Hirons' possessions. They announced that the medical instruments could not be linked to the murders. No trace of biological material, such as blood, skin, or hair, were found on the tools. However, no biological material of the victims were found in Hirons himself or any of his clothes. The medical kit tools were considered to be too fine and small to be used for dissection. Hirons had used the four-inch long medical kit to alter the war bonds he stole. A gun was found in his possession that was linked to a shooting. A Colt Police Positive revolver had been stolen in a burglary at the apartment of Guy Roderick on December 3, 1945. Two nights later, a bullet crashed through the closed 8th floor apartment windows of Marion Caldwell, wounding her. Hirons had the gun in his possession and, according to the Chicago Police Department, the bullet that injured Caldwell was linked through ballistics to the same gun. As time observed in its July 29, 1946 issue, the News and Hearst Herald American hit the street together with front page layouts showing Hirons as Dr. Jekyll with his hair combed and Mr. Hyde with his hair masked. He had not yet been charged with murder, but the Tribune airily convicted him, quote, how Hirons slew three. On July 14th, State's Attorney Toohey met in a closed-door meeting with Hirons' lawyers, the brothers Maliki and John Coughlin, to discuss a possible plea bargain. In this atmosphere of five daily newspapers fighting to be the first with the scoop on Hiram's story, a totally fabricated confession written by the Chicago Tribune staff reporter George Wright was printed as fact on July 18, 1946 under the title, The Hiram Story, How He Killed Suzanne Degnan and Two Women. Wright cited, quote, unimpeachable sources that Hiram's had confessed when he had not, and provided manufactured details. The Tribune devoted 38 columns to the story. It began, quote, This is the story of how William George Hirons, 17, kidnapped, strangled, and then dismembered Suzanne, 6, last January 7th, and distributed the parts of her body in the sewer openings near her home. It is the story of how William George Hirons climbed into the apartment of Miss Frances Brown and shot and stabbed her to death and left a message on the wall with lipstick imploring the police to catch him. And it is the story of how William George Hirons entered the apartment of Mrs. Josephine Ross and how he stabbed her to death when she awoke, end quote. The four other competing daily newspapers reprinted it in their publications as the Trib about itself. Quote, so great was public confidence in the Tribune that other newspapers reprinted the story solely because the Tribune had said it was so. For a while, Hirons maintained his innocence, but the whole world believed his guilt. The Tribune had said he was guilty, end quote. Hirons had a few supporters in the press 
the London Sunday Pictorial ran an article called, quote, Condemned Before His Trial, America Calls This Justice, end quote. While all Americans wait for a man to be charged in one of the most complex murder cases in history, a suspected youth has already been tried in the pages of Chicago newspapers, and he has been found guilty. As late as 1975, the Chicago Daily News was still taking credit for its, quote, scoop. Oh, it sounds like the article written by the London Sunday Pictorial. It sounds like it was the most logical article out there at this time, actually claiming that maybe we shouldn't sentence somebody before they've actually had their day in court. Right. Yeah, and I mean, we still see a heavy media influence on high-profile cases today, but I mean, this is really bad because the information that they are receiving is from credible sources that are providing them inaccurate information. (laughs) So they should be getting it directly from the source. That's good, but that source is not providing the truth. So it's complicating the fuck out of this case. Yeah, no, it's a mess. Okay, I want to talk about an eyewitness in this case. George E. Sabrensky, an active duty soldier, made a statement the day after the murder of Suzanne that he saw a figure walking in the direction of the Degnan residence with a shopping bag. He said he was, quote, about five feet, nine inches tall, weighing about 170 pounds, about 35 years old, and dressed in a light colored fedora and a dark overcoat, end quote. Due to the lack of light, he couldn't make out this person's facial features. When the police showed him a photo of Hirons on July 11th, he could not identify him as the man he saw. On July 16th, so five days later, during a hearing, he pointed to Hirons and said, quote, that's the man I saw when he was brought into the courtroom and made the identification in person. The Chicago Press stated that this solidified the case against Hirons. Sabrunsky's testimony helped to return an indictment. Later, Sabrunsky's in-court testimony would be discredited, but quietly. A radio newscast reported on the Chicago Tribune's scoop of the, quote, confession, which Hirons heard in his cell. He was incredulous, stating, quote, I didn't confess to anybody. Honestly, my God, what are they going to pin on me next? End quote. Hirons' lawyers pressured him to take state's attorney Tui's plea bargain. That deal, which was the topic of that closed-door meeting with Tui, stated that Hirons would serve one life sentence if he confessed to the murders of Josephine Ross, Francis Brown, and Suzanne Dagnan. With the help of his lawyers, he began drafting a confession using the Chicago Tribune article as a guide. Quote, as it turned out, the Tribune article was very helpful, as it provided me with a lot of details I didn't know. My attorneys rarely changed anything outright, but I could tell by their faces if I had made a mistake. Or they would say, now, Bill, is that really the way it happened? Then I would change my story because obviously it went against what was known in the Tribune. End quote. Both Hiron and his parents signed the confession. The parties agreed to a date of July 30th for Hirons to make his official confession. On that date, the defense went to Tui's office where several reporters were assembled to ask Hiron questions and where Tui himself made a speech. Hirons appeared bewildered and gave non-committal answers to reporters' questions, which he years later blamed on Tui. 
Quote, it was Tui himself. After assembling all of the officials, including attorneys and policemen, he began a preamble about how long everyone had waited to get the confession out of me. But at last, the truth was going to be told. He kept emphasizing the word truth, and I asked him if he really wanted the truth. He assured me that he did. Now, too, we made a big deal about hearing the truth. Now, when I was being forced to lie to save my life, it made me so angry, so I told them the truth, and everyone got very upset, end quote. Tui withdrew the previously agreed sentence of one life's term with a few minor changes and charged it with three life terms to run consecutively and threaten Hirons with the death penalty if it went to trial. They threatened to charge him with the murder of Estelle Carey, who even though Hirons was attending the Gibalt School for Wayward Boys on a boarding school in Terre Haute, Indiana at the time, Hirons' own attorneys were angry at their client for reneging on the plea bargain. The Chicago Tribune had a headline, Mute Hirons Faces Trial, Killer Spurns Mother's Fervent Plea to Talk. Tui announced that he would press ahead to try Hirons for the death of Susan Dagnan and Francis Brown. Hirons agreed with the new plea agreement. The public allocation was held again in Tui's office. This time, Hirons talked and answered questions, even reenacting parts of the murders he had convinced to. Ahern changed his opinion and believed he was culpable when he heard how familiar Hirons was with victim Francis Brown's apartment. Hirons said later, quote, I confess to save my life. In his confession, Hirons stated that he disposed of the hunting knife with which he said he cut up Suzanne Dagnan in the elevated subway tracks near the scene of the murder. The police never searched the L tracks. However, Learning of this, reporters inquired with the track crew if they had found the knife. They had found it on the tracks and they kept it in the Granville Station storage room. These reporters determined that the knife belonged to Guy Roderick, the same person who had his Colt Police positive 22 caliber gun stolen and found in Hiram's possession. On July 31st, he positively identified the knife as his. Hiram's acknowledged that he threw the knife there from an L train claiming he didn't want his mother to see it. Hirons took full responsibility for the three murders on August 7, 1946. The prosecution had him reenact the crime in the Degnan home, in public, and in front of the press. On September 4th, with Hirons' parents and the victim's families attending, the Chief Justice Harold G. Ward presiding, Hirons admitted his guilt on the burglary and murder charges. That night, Hirons tried to hang himself in his cell timed to coincide during a shift change of the prison guards. He was discovered before he died. It was apparently despair that drove him to suicide. Quote, everyone believed I was guilty. If I weren't alive, I felt I could avoid being adjudged guilty by the law and thereby gain some victory. But I wasn't successful even at that. Before I walked into the courtroom, my counsel told me to just enter a plea of guilty and keep my mouth shut afterward. I didn't even have a trial, end quote. They, like, make this comment that he doesn't even have a trial, but if you enter a guilty plea, that makes sense. Like, you wouldn't have a trial if you enter that guilty plea. Like, why would you need a jury to determine if you're guilty or not if you're admitting your guilt? You know what I mean? That's why they don't have one. So that's weird that he must not have understood at that time what that meant. 
So on September 5th, after further evidence was written in the record and the prosecution and defense made their closing statements, Judge Ward formally sentenced Hirons to three life terms and an additional one year to life for burglaries and assaults. As Hirons waited to be transferred to Statesville Prison from the Cook County Jail, Sheriff Michael Mulcahy asked Hirons if Suzanne suffered when she was killed. Hirons answered, quote, I can't tell you if she suffered, Sheriff Mulcahy. I didn't kill her. Tell Mr. Degnan to please look after his other daughter, because whoever killed Suzanne is still out there, end quote. Okay, addicts, we have unfortunately ran out of time for this week's episode, but there is so much more to get to still. Come back next week to hear part two of The Lipstick Killer, where we will dive deeper into the aftermath of these horrendous crimes, dissect the prosecution's evidence and inconsistencies, debate whether Hirons is in fact guilty, and propose another suspect. If you thought this case was already juicy, it's only about to get juicier. Thank you again for all of your support and love we receive on a daily basis. We are truly blessed and thankful for each and every one of you addicts. Come back next week, addicts, for another CA meeting. And until then, stay alive, stay alert, and stay caffeinated.